Love you, Jenny. Love you, Jay. Church, you are loved and you are missed. If you have your Bibles in front of you, please open them with me to the book of James, chapter 1. We'll be camping out in verses 19 through 21 this Lord's Day morning. If you don't know who I am, my name is Nick, and in a week and a day, I will have been a member of Covenant Life Church for six years. As you've heard, our church turned 10 years old yesterday, and I've had the privilege of sharing six of those years with this beautiful faith family. I don't say this hastily. I am 100% convinced. If Jesus is to be seen in me, it is because of this church. It's because of God's powerful work through these imperfect, unremarkable, blood-bought sinners of whom I am the foremost. Beloved, you have seen me at my weakest and at my ugliest. You called me on my sin and my unbelief, and you've exhorted me to gaze on Christ, crucified and resurrected as my righteousness, as my assurance, and as my joy. I mean this. There, there isn't a week that passes where I am not freshly reminded of how much I don't deserve you. Your genuine love for me, your care and affection for my soul, and your steadfast encouragement in God's word. When I think about it, that specifically has got to be one of the most defining qualities of our church, our commitment to God's word, the Bible. I don't mean we're the only church around that loves the Bible or cares about the Bible, but what I do mean is that if you take away our particular convictions around the scriptures, that they are divinely inspired, breathed out by God, that they are inerrant, incapable of error, that they are infallible, trustworthy, and unfailing, that they are the supreme authority of all life, practice, and doctrine. Take these convictions away from Covenant Life Church, and you no longer have Covenant Life Church. Our commitment to the written word of God is an irreplaceable ingredient of our DNA, of our identity. It shapes everything we do. Because we love God, we love what God says. And we have centered our life and our worship around how he has revealed himself to us in the Bible. For this, I am thankful. I'm thankful for 10 years of building our ministry on the foundation of God's word. And church, it is a good and firm foundation to stand upon together. One of the ways we prioritize our commitment to the scriptures is by giving ourselves to a regular rhythm of preaching, verse by verse, through books of the Bible. This is not, only the, this is not the, only, the only faithful way to study the word of God together, but we do believe it to be effective. So for the past several weeks, we've been making our way through the letter of James. And as Justin pointed out before Easter, James is a very direct and has a very direct and shepherd-like approach to his encouragement of the believers he's writing to. He begins by calling them to count it all joys when we face different kinds of trials, which these Christians most certainly were being persecuted on all sides everywhere. Your trials, James says, are a test of your faith. Is it genuine? Is it real? Your response to trials will certainly answer that question. Will you dig your heels in further? Will you cleave yourself more securely to Christ and his promises? When your world is collapsing and you have no explanation for why life is so presently punishing and cruel, 
Will you confidently cry out for the, to the Lord for the wisdom that you lack and for answers that he is generous to give? Or will you call God's promises into question? Will you doubt his goodness to you like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind, unstable in your ways? How you respond to suffering and trial is telling. James then warns of the proud and the boastful heart of placing our confidence in worldly exaltation, in status, in money. Those things simply will not last, and they certainly won't carry you through your trials. They will shrivel up and they will die like a thirsty flower in a sweltering desert. James continues to lobby, to lobby to us to endure in our trials. He warns against thinking that God is the one who tempts us to sin while we experience those trials. God, the father of lights, James says, creator of the moon, sun, and stars, the God that does not change ever, he can only give good gifts. Do you want to know the greatest gift that the father could give? Read with me in verse 18. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. James declares just how good God is by reminding the believers of what he has done for them. He caused dead, lifeless sinners to be born again. Through the power of the word, he has made us a new creation. It was here that our journey through James left off two weeks ago, and it is here that our study picks up once again in verses 19 through 20. I was surprised by this passage, and I think that you will be as well. It's an unexpected delight when God the Holy Spirit takes a text that you thought you had a good grasp on and flips it upside down, and you're never able to look at it the same way again. It can be easy to treat these verses as one-off potpourri commands to listen to others, be patient, don't get angry, stop sinning, and read your Bible. But I think we take a closer look, and with no small amount of Holy Spirit supernatural illumination from God himself, we'll see that James is endeavoring to rouse our affections to the word of God. The Holy Scriptures take center stage here, and that our attitudes towards them matter. Left to ourselves, we're not going to find anything in these verses except maybe more rules to follow. But if we call upon God to help us this morning, our eyes will be opened, our ears will be unstopped, and our minds will be renewed. So I invite you to pray with me as we ask for the Spirit to lead us this morning. Holy Father, you spoke, and there was. Lord, your word affected something from the very beginning. And throughout the pages of scripture, throughout redemptive history, when you speak, you reveal who you are to us and you call us to yourself. Lord, we pray this morning that our hearts would be primed and prepped to hear the word of God and to be receptive to what it says to us. Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to change uh, the patterns of sin in our lives, our proneness to wander. And God, we need your spirit to breathe into us new life through the scriptures so that we can be reinvigorated uh, to live for you all the more. God, we pray that uh, this morning what is heard would be far greater and more effective than what is preached and that we would look more like Jesus at the end of the day.
We pray all of this in the matchless name of Jesus the Christ, one God, now and forever. Amen. So before James jumps into the the main parts or the meat and potatoes of this encouragement, verse 19 begins with something that we know. This you know, my beloved brethren. This being the thing that we just said. I'll read it again. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. What we know is that God has saved us. He saved us from our wickedness and our rebellion towards him. He saved us from the powers of darkness that we were once enslaved to. But above all, he saved us from his own righteous wrath that hung over our heads because we have offended his infinite holiness. James makes clear that he gave us new life, not because we were deserving of it, but because it was his will to do so that we would be his first fruits. He saved us by himself and to himself. Justin covered this a few weeks ago, but take particular note of the means by which God saves us. He brought us forth by the word of truth. The word of truth, God's word was the agent that saved us. God spoke and change was affected. Something happened and that's the point. That's what James wants us to know. Late in the summer of 386 AD, a troubled man was laying underneath a fig tree ready to give up on life. He'd spent all his years in empty pursuit of a pornified and lust and passions and was miserable in his soul. He recounts suddenly out of nowhere hearing the voice of a young girl in the distance, perhaps an angel, he never, was never really sure, take up and read, take up and read. Finding the nearest Bible, he opened it at random and read Romans 13, 13 through 14. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. He was immediately convinced of this, the sinful passions of his flesh would never be enough to satisfy his most deepest spiritual longings. It was at that moment that the Holy Spirit saved St. Augustine, brought him forth into new life by the word of truth. On January 6th, 1850, young Charles was trudging uphill in the midst of a fierce and torrential blizzard. Why? Well, he had to go to church. That's what was expected of him. That's what he would be judged for doing. All Charles knew of was God's wrath of the condemnation for sin and righteousness if he did not do what he was supposed to do. But he knew nothing of the grace and the mercy that God bestows to us in the gospel. He trudged on. The blizzard prevented him from making it to his regular Sunday meeting place. So he turned the corner and found himself in a new, alien, small Methodist chapel. And there he heard a message from Isaiah 45, 22. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. And that was the day that God saved Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the prince of preachers. He was brought forth to new life by the word of truth. In 1996, a 13-year-old boy with guilt in his heart and strong Catholic persuasions randomly opened his Bible up to do a sort of penance for the sins that he had committed that day. He turned open to Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 and 22. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? 
And then I will declare to them, I never knew you depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It was then that he understood that it was not by his works that he could ever satisfy, satisfy God's righteous requirement. That only by submitting himself to Christ's mercy could he be saved. And Daniel Alejandro Bruce Acosta was brought forth into new life by the word of truth. Underneath every conversion story is the Holy Spirit who breathes the life-giving word of God into dry, dead bones. The written word of God, the Bible, testifies about the incarnate word of God, Jesus. And through the good news of Jesus, sinners are saved. The holy scriptures are in the business of winning souls to God. And they always have been. And this is what James commends these believers for knowing. This you know, my beloved brethren. You know that God has saved you. You know that you've experienced the power of the word of God to make you a new creation. I think that James emphasizes their knowledge of this truth because he wants them to understand it is good for you to know this. You are beset by trials and temptations. Take a moment to bask in the light, the same light that pierced the darkness of your fallen nature and made you new. Without the active word of God that opened your eyes and illuminated your path, you would have never seen the truth. I think that James is giving us a common goal that is throughout the pages of scripture to preach the gospel to ourselves. We say this all, of the, t- all the time here. To be constantly reminded of the, of the gospel that saved us and how, it was, and how God saved us through his Holy Spirit breathing into us the word. It's why we use gospel-centered language here all the time. We're gospel-centric. We're Christ-centered. It's because when we look at this book, and if we were to take this book and distill everything in it into one word, that word would be Jesus. This you know, James says, and it is good for you to know. But perhaps, perhaps you don't know. Maybe you don't know. You don't know that We were all created for God and every one of us rebelled against him. The punishment for that rebellion is death and eternal wrath. And the requirement for a righteous relationship with God is perfect obedience to his law. Left to our own devices, we could never come close to keeping the commandments of God. But God in his great mercy offered up his son as an appeasement for the sins of those who trust in him so that through his death, the wrath we stored up for ourselves would be absorbed by Jesus and his perfect obedience would be counted as our righteousness. As Justin, Justin preached last week, that repent and believe in the gospel so that the, so your sins may be blotted out. What that means is that when God opens, like God the judge opens up his ledger and does his heavenly bookkeeping, he will see your name and all the list of every sin, past, present, and future. And if you've trusted in his son, every one of those sins will be blotted out, illegible. All he will see is the blood of Christ. And the the empty tomb is the evidence that that, that death had no claim on Jesus. And no longer has a claim to us. Friend, if you're listening today and this is news to you, I would call you to respond to it appropriately. If God is right now calling you to himself through the letter of James, if the Holy Spirit is pricking your conscience and making you alive to spiritual realities that you were previously ignorant of, cry out to the Lord. 
Renounce your sins, turn away from them and ask God for the mercy and forgiveness that only Jesus can give to you because only Jesus has earned for you. And if you're just confused as to what all this means, you don't really know what it means, but you want to find out more, we encourage you, reach out to someone you know that is a Christian. Reach out to a member of this church, reach out to me, reach out to an elder, reach out to one of our staff. We would love to talk to you and explain to you more about what this looks like. And if you're skeptical, if you're hearing all of this and you know it, but you just, it's not true of you, I would just encourage you, have you read the Bible? Have you actually come face to face with what God says in it? And I would challenge you to read it. If you never have, open up and start in the book of John. It will not come back void. At the very least, it deserves your investigation. But wherever you are, whether it's news, whether you're confused or whether you're a skeptic, just respond to it appropriately and don't tarry. Augustine wrote about how he tarried. He says, late have I loved you, beauty so ancient and so new. Late have I loved you. He would write about how the, work, how the word invaded his life and he wished he would have come sooner. You called, shouted, broke through my deafness. You flared, blazed, banished my blindness. You lavished your fragrance. I gasped and now I pant for you. I tasted and now I hunger and thirst. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find your rest in you. James says, remember your salvation. Remember the word of truth that brought you from death to life. It is good that you know this. This you know, my beloved brethren, but. But. This you know, my beloved brethren, but let every man be quick to listen, quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. He says, but, because this is not the only thing that you must know. Now, I want to make a quick distinction here. Many of you are reading the, ES, the English Standard Version. I'm preaching from the New American Standard Version today. You probably see in your, in your versions, know this, my beloved brothers. Now, it's, not to, it's very different in that the NAS kind of points back to verse 18, where the English Standard Version points towards what James is saying in verse 19. I don't think that the translations are at odd. This isn't a shot at Crossway's translation team in any manner whatsoever. But uh, I, do, I do believe that this is sort of a fulcrum of what James is saying with the entire letter. He's, he, brought us, he, he brought us into light our, our salvation. And now he's pointing forward to what we must do with that salvation now that we know it. Now that we understand what the word has done in our lives. He gives us three imperatives. Be quick to hear slow to speak, slow to anger. And he begins with, but every man must be quick to hear, verse 19. Quick to hear what? What is he talking about? I think James gives us many clues as to what, uh, as to what is surrounding these verses on all sides. Verse 18, the word of truth is mentioned. Verse 21, the implanted word is mentioned. Verse 22, be doers of the word. The word is called in verse 23, a glass or a mirror. Verse 25, the perfect law of liberty into which you look. James isn't just catapulting himself out of a context of talking about the word in and around verse 19 into some kind of unrelated discussion about how you should listen to others and not talk and don't get angry. Don't get me wrong. I definitely think that verse 19 has interpersonal implications. I just don't think that it starts there. The issue at hand is a response to the word. 
That word of truth not only is there at the beginning when we are saved, but it comes, becomes the focal point of all the rest of our spiritual experience. Since we experience the power of the word to make us into a new creation, this we know. The idea is that we must continue to allow it to do its powerful work in our lives. Now that we have our dial spiritually tuned to the channel that God is broadcasting on, we begin to hear and receive. The issue at hand is a response to the word. And so James says, be quick to hear. What he means by this is a certain type of attitude, a posture towards the word of God heard, studied, read. It's an eagerness. It's a type of hunger that that yearns and longs to be in front of the word of God, to be reading the word of God, to be studying the word of God, to be friendly, in a friendly manner, discussing the word of God. He's getting at our attitudes, our attitudes toward the scripture. The best kind of analogy I can think of this is when you're sitting and waiting for your food to come at a restaurant. You just eagerly, you see a waiter coming by, plate, Oh, no, that's not for us. Okay, kind of a letdown. Oh, no, no, no. Appetizers? And then you experience joy, and it's the fulfillment of anticipation when you get your big plate of fries and burger. Children who are watching, what, what what I'd relate this to is when you go to bed on Christmas evening, anticipating the morning. You yearn for it. You're waiting for it. And you run to it when it arrives. James wants us to be attentive. He wants us to be watchful. And I'm, I'm just, I'm so glad that he doesn't say, yeah, and listen to the word and he, read your Bible and hear the word. J. Alec Mateer, commentator that we have relied on heavily in this, in this series, writes, we might wonder why the ever practical James does not proceed to outline schemes of daily Bible reading for us. For surely those are the ways in which we offer a willing ear to the voice of God, but he does not help us in this way. Rather, he goes deeper, for there is little point in schemes and times if we do not have an attentive spirit, an alert spirit. It is possible to be unfailingly regular in Bible reading, but achieve no more than to have moved the bookmark forward. This is reading unrelated to an attentive spirit. The word is read, but not heard. So James says, be quick to hear. Literally, he says, be swift to the hearing. There's an image kind of being painted here that not just be swift to reading the word of God for yourself, understanding the word of God, dissecting it, getting at it, but there are times in which the word of God is read and preached and taught. It's a, it's a picture of a lesson or a sermon or a service. And, and you can ask yourself the question. You can take some spiritual inventory here. Do you hunger for that? Or is it a burden for you? Are you always checking your watch? Are you coming under constraint? Could you take it or leave it? Too often I hear the, the phrase, uh, wasn't much that I didn't know. As if we, can't, we can exhaust the word of God because we've already heard it before. Do you really have a tremendous desire to learn? Do you long to grow? Do you have an appetite for the word? Do you hunger to know him in it? I think the best ways we can bring this into application is really how we understand our Lord's Day services. 
Do we anticipate the word of God central to it? Do we come to it yearning to learn more, to understand more? Covenant Life every single week puts out a meditation for preparation meant to prime our hearts for worship. Have you read it recently? In all that we do, James encourages us to be attentive whenever the word of God is preached or read or heard or studied. And that is the way to learn from God, by loving all his, that he says. And knowing that whatever God says, wherever he says it, when his people are learning it, it is the thing that you want to know. The next thing that James says is to be slow to speak. It's very in contrast with swift to the hearing. He says slow to the speaking. The idea that's being communicated here is a sort of carefulness or reluctance to speak the word in any kind of confrontational manner. Whether that be teaching it or whether that be confronting someone with the word in a very forceful manner. I'm not saying that James is in any way saying that that shouldn't be done but he is saying that we should be slow to it, careful with it, reluctant about it. I enjoy preaching. I enjoy teaching. I can't honestly say that I rush to preach with some kind of unnatural exhilaration. There is a certain reluctance in my heart every time I come to the Lord's day and I am here preaching. There's a certain reluctance for fear that somehow, some way, I might misrepresent God. And now, the, apparently there was, in the fellowship to which James wrote, the dispersion uh, of the 12 tribes, this was a problem. There might have been a lot of people sort of shooting off their mouth. And verse 26, if any among you seems to be religious but cannot bridle his tongue, he is a deceiver and his religion is useless. What probably was going on was a lot of people were sort of just popping off their view of everything. In a lot of ways, they were sort of would-be preachers. They thought they were hot stuff and they knew everything. So as believers, we, we need to learn from this, this dual truth that we're to be quick to hear God's word taught, rushing to find every occasion and opportunity within reason to do that, taking advantage of those privileges. But at the same time, we're reluctant to offer ourselves in the place of teaching and preaching and confrontation because we have a great sense of its significance. And I, I really do, I think it's here where we begin to get a, a small picture and it widens later on in the text, but a small picture of what was really going on in this group of people that James was writing to. There were a lot of would-be teachers. Uh, Chapter three, he says, not many of you, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such will incur a stricter judgment. He knew that a lot of them were just kind of hearing the word of God and speaking authoritatively about it in a hasty manner. Once again, we're not saying we should never speak or confront other people with the word of God. We're just saying, don't do it so flippantly. The third thing James tells us to be is slow to anger. Slow to anger. The anger that James writes about here is a sort of seething resentment. It's not an explosive, raging anger, but a, but a seething underneath the surface, deep-seated rejection of something. 
when you hear something from the word, we shouldn't be building up a resentment to it because one, it doesn't agree with what we thought or two, because it confronts our sin. That's the issue here. It's our reaction to the word. It's a disposition of rejection. The context here is hearing the word, teaching the word, so it implies anger against those who do teach the word or confront you with the word. And so we, we, we begin to understand. It's not a high-resolution picture of what's going on in these churches, but it is sort of an impressionist painting, and we see that there was just a lot of stuff flying around in the air. There were murmurings, and there were evil speakings, and there was hostility. In fact, if you notice in chapter 4, James brings it right into focus. He says, from where come wars and fightings among you? They come out of your lust. Get this, you, you lust and you have not. You kill, you desire to have. You fight, you war. It's because they're pitted against each other. Everyone wanted to be heard. Everyone had his view. Everyone had his opinion. And James says, be, be slow to anger. And it's actually really interesting what he's doing here. Most undoubtedly, every Jewish Christian that heard this would have looked back to what God, how God had revealed himself time and time again in the Old Testament. When God passed in front of Moses on Mount Sinai, and said, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness and maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Slow to anger. And that's where he goes. There was anger and there was hostility. And there was vitriolic attitudes that were flying around in that church. He says that you're to be wary. Very slow to ever have a rejection have a rejection or a resentment towards what's being preached. The, the, ang the, the, ang the slow to anger in the Old Testament, the, the believers that James is writing to would understand that to be, they would, they would hear in Hebrew, long of nostrils. A dear, dear friend of mine, we'll call him Glenn, has a very serious and noticeable tell whenever he is emotionally affected by something. Whenever, specifically when you're angry, whenever, when, it, when he's angry, whenever, whenever you say something that angers or irks Glenn, his nostrils will flare up. There's a, there's a, there's a type of breathing that is associated with this, this sort of, this sort of anger. Long of nostrils means that you're tempered and you have it under control. Glenn would readily admit that he gets very short of nostrils, short of breath, gets us flustered. The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. And I'm glad that he says this. At the very end of all of, all of this, he, he gets at the heart of our anger. It's idolatry. Yes, he commends us to listen to the word. Yes, he commends us to be careful in speaking it. And yes, he commends us to be patient when we hear something we don't like. But the, ang but, but the anger of man achieving the righteousness of God is usually why we get angry and why we go on our crusades. We think that in our anger, we're going to fight the good fight and somehow expunge, expunge all of this false teaching that we see. Mateer is helpful here again. Anger is not pure emotion. We think that it is, but it's not. It is heavily impregnated with sin, with intolerance, with stubbornness, with self-importance and self-assertion. Most of us would have to confess that holy anger belongs in a state of sanctification to which we have not yet attained. 
And I think that we begin to see the, the, the social implications of what's going on here. Just, Justin once told me, uh, in a time when I really need some loving, caring, critical rebuke, correction, Nick, you have a, you have a frequent habit, and probably unhealthy habit, of bowing up at your convictions. And I didn't know what that meant, so I went home and I looked it up. Apparently, to bow up is a southern phrase, and it means to kind of get riled up about something. The, the image that's given is you puff out your chest and you kind of have your arms hanging like parentheses, and you're kind of like Gaston or the bulldog from Tom and Jerry. And it's, you're, you're angry, and you, you, it's sort of like a fighting stance. You get ready to fight. And I think this week, as I've just been thinking about that feedback that was given to me years ago, I, I, I can look at this, what's going on in James, and I can reverse engineer really, really what's going on from the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. I'm, I'm, I, I go around and I get, I get, why am I so angry? Why does this bother me so much? When I hear something that I don't like, or when someone confronts me with a sin, and I'm like, I don't know if I agree with that. Why, am, why does it upset me so? And why do I let it have so much power over me? And so I go back and James says, just be slow to anger. You don't just be even tempered. Control your breathing like the Hulk in that movie with the Brazilian like monk, I think, and the, the abs and anyway, sorry. Uh, be careful with how you speak. Be careful. And listen to others when they are because they should also be careful with how they speak. I think the... Uh, most prevalent uh, application that I have for this, just what the believers in James were going through. It was complex. It was hard. They were oppressed by Israel. They were oppressed by the church. They were oppressed by Rome. Persecutions on all sides. It was hard. Everyone likely had their opinion. It's understandable that things were tense and things were a mess. And I think that we do find ourselves in a similar situation. Think that the world is in flames and doesn't know what to do, doesn't know how to handle these things, and we have an opportunity to tether our hearts to the Word of God. We have an opportunity in tethering our hearts to the Word of God to be understanding of one another and to exercise self control and restraint on the opinion spectrum. Anywhere from you're not loving your neighbor because you're not isolating the way I think you should isolate to you're living in fear because you're not self-quarantined and anywhere in between. James really warns against worldliness. He warns us to not look like the world and how they're handling it. I think that we really need to be aware of this. We are in a more vulnerable position now than ever before. We're physically separated from each other we're not able to take the Lord's Supper, so there's not a safeguard against us getting upset and not reconciling. We need to beware. And just, this is for free. Beware of what you're posting on social media. Think about this. It, it matters now more than ever before. This is how we're communicating with each other. We're more connected than ever before, virtually. But think about what you're posting on social media think? Am I, am I bringing someone into judgment here? I think the best way, the, the, the 
best people we can imitate in this whole, in this whole scenario and how we bring this into application is our elders. Our elders have led so well throughout COVID-19 and how they continue to lead in COVID-19. They are deliberate, watchful, prayerful in everything that they say. They're tethering everything to the word of God and they're listening to everyone who has a complaint. Imitate them as they imitate Christ. We have so much to learn here. I think that's what James is getting at in verses 19 and 20. We have so much to learn. And what we have to learn is far more important than what we have to say. Verse 21 continues, and I'll go ahead and read it for you. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. So 19 and 20 was hearing the word of God and our attitude towards hearing the word of God. 21 is receiving the word of God. Yes, the word should be heard, but the word should also be received seems to be an imagery here that is very similar to the parable of the sower, where Jesus reached, where the, the sower reached into his bag, spread out seed, and the seed landed on different soils. And some soils rejected the seed. Other soils accepted it. Other soils accepted it for a time. And James is wanting us to receive. And before we receive, we have to prep our soil. We have to put off all that remains of all, all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. The word filthiness here is, is like a, a dirt and grime that sort of accumulates over time. Think of like a white t-shirt that you wear for like 12 days in a row. It's, it's, it's referring to grimy, grimy clothes. And, and I'll, I'll go ahead and, and tell, you, tell you a story. There was, I, many of you know, I was, a, I was a diver growing up competitively. And there's something that you, they're taught very early on called a save. And so uh, whenever you're making a dive, you, you go into the water and you're supposed to continue the motion that you, you were doing the dive in. So if you're doing like a front three and a half, you were continue going in the front motion. And it did a couple of things. It, it made sure that you didn't splash. It made sure it kind of cheated the dive if you were short. So you kind of go in and you're, the last thing I see is straight is your straight feet. And so you were told to do it very often. And me, because I was 10 or 11, and I knew everything, decided not to do it. And I would go all the way down to the bottom of the pool and launch myself up. And I did this for years. Come around my freshman year of high school, I begin to realize that I can't, I'm beginning to lose my hearing. I can't hear. And then the ear infection started. I mean, I was in a couple of youth orchestras at the time, and I, 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 I couldn't hear my teachers and class, and I didn't know what was going on. My ear infection started happening, and so something, something was wrong. And I, I go to the doctor, and I'll never forget first going there. He lays me down on the table. He's looking in my ear, and he says, huh. And he starts, he gets a scalpel out, and he starts scooping dead skin and wax, wet, wet, wet skin and wax that had accumulated over the years. Now, Come to find out, my ear canal does a really weird thing. It's, it's different than most. And the pressure, I mean, diving pools are 12 feet deep by regulation. Our, the pool I trained in was 16 and a half. Years, six, 
two hours a day, six days a week of going to that pool and all of that, all of that stuff pressurizing down into that cavity had just pressed it up against my eardrum. And it was so far back that Q-tips weren't even doing it. I was cleaning my ears. He pulled it out. and I, I, It was the most horrific and awesome display of human anatomy that I had, I had ever seen. But uh, that's what the word here for filthiness in many, in, in many ancient texts is used to represent. It's the type of wax that accumulates in your ears so that you can't hear the truth. He also says all that remains of wickedness. This is also where ESV and NAS kind of have differing things, but here I think it's either or both work. Uh, ESV says rampant wickedness. NAS says all that remains of wickedness. Uh, what's, what's, be, what's being talked about here is a, a sort of residual. And there are two types of residuals. There's a residual that you have more macaroni than you need, and there's a residual that you have little specks of macaroni all over your shirt because you're done with the macaroni. There's all that remains, and there's the rampant, the overflowing. And, and both really work, and both are kind of leaning towards the, the idea of the soil, and there are weeds in this soil. I remember when I was, uh, when I was a boy, we grew up next to a, uh, a man named Mr. Torelli. And Mr. Torelli was super Italian, super Catholic, and super old. And Mr. Torelli would have me, uh, he, had the, he had this garden. They grew all their plants themselves. And he would, he would always put me to work for like a buck a day. And he would uh, have me tear out all the weeds in these big corrugated metal planters. And it was just overflowing because he hadn't really done much with them in a couple of months. And so I would, I would pull it all out and pull it out and I would be done. And I would get my dollar for the day and I would go home. Then I would be there on a Saturday morning. He would knock on my door. Oh, you, you need to do more. There's, there's more. There's stuff that remains and I can't plant until I get all of these weeds out. It's what he's telling us here. Sin blocks our healing. It chokes out the soil. And I would just encourage you, as I'm running a little low on time, take sin seriously, brothers and sisters. Understand that sin is going to choke out the word of God. And you're not going to be able to receive it well if you are indulging in your fleshly desires and passions. James continues, in humility, receive the word implanted. He says to receive. And, and this, this, this humility that he's talking about is, is a teachable spirit, is a humble spirit. Uh, ESV says in meekness. There's a, there's a temper of spirit in which we accept God's dealings with us as good and without disputing him. And that's the type of meekness that James is talking about here. So in all, of, in, all, in all of these flying statements, whether they be hasty or whether they not be, we're to be quick to hear anytime the word of God, we are confronted with the word of God. So James says, the temper of spirit in which we accept God's dealing with us is good and without disputing, we, re we, receive, we receive that word because God, because when God gives us the word, we know that it will be good and we have much to learn from it. So we receive the word of God. And so and in humility, we receive the word of God implanted, which is able to save your souls. 
This text was started with the power of the word of God to save, and it ends with the power of the word of God to save. The word of God is able to save our souls. And so I would commend to you, brothers and sisters, run to it. Uh, John Piper would ask, what is this like? What, 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 what is it like to receive something that you already have implanted? And he, he gives a very powerful illustration here. He says it is like breathing. Our souls depend on the implanted word and our souls depend on receiving the word. If you decide that you don't need to receive the external word, you are like a person who decides that he does not need to breathe. The implanted word is powerful. It produces life and breathing. He says it takes over the spiritual diaphragm and demands oxygen. It demands the life-giving external word. And so many of us are trying to go from Sunday to Sunday holding our breath. Trust in the word of God to save your souls, to make you more holy, to sow seeds of unity amongst the tension that James was talking about. It is powerful and it is good. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you once again for your word, for what it does to us, and for what you did for us. Lord, we thank you for your the ultimate revelation of who you are to us in Jesus and that the scriptures speak of that Jesus. Let us find him there. Let us go on this week looking more like him. We pray all this in your name. Amen.